Today we're welcoming uh, Jeff and Susan McSwain, founders of Reality Ministries. And I, first, before I introduce Jeff, I want to invite Susan to come up, if you would, because um, uh, I would love for her to tell you all, if you aren't familiar or for the uninitiated, some of the amazing work that Reality Ministries is doing. That'd be awesome. Thank you, Chris. Um, so, how many years ago, when we were just starting our daytime stuff, Chris would come over once a week and cook lunch. How, how long ago? Before you did all this? Kids, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, five, yeah five, or, five or six years ago, yeah. Um, and like Chris said about being part, he said if you're here today, now you're part of Oak Church. That's kind of how it is <laughs> at reality. If you come once or don't, you're still part of it. You're part of it by being here today. Reality, um, our mission is creating opportunities for adults with and without developmental disabilities to experience belonging, kinship, and the life-changing reality of Christ's love. Um, and so uh, we're just a community of people um, sharing life together in a lot of different ways. And I think um, our, our gift to the community is just creating space, just opening up space where people who um, wouldn't necessarily see each other, <laughs> cross paths in day-to-day -day life, can come together and um, enjoy um, community that is reflective of the kingdom of God in our midst, um, similar to the heart and essence of the Oak Church. We are a place of giving and receiving from one another the presence of Jesus. The name Reality Ministries comes from Colossians 2. The reality is found in Christ. And we're finding that deepest reality of all of our lives, of belonging to God in Christ. And we're growing in that um, in surprising and unexpected ways as we open ourselves up to one another. So we'd love to have you um, be part of that with us. Um, it's a really joyful place um, and also um, a, a place where we share life deeply. And so in the pain and in the joy and in the realness of all the things that all of our lives, regardless of our abilities, um, all the things that our lives are so full of, we're just entering into those things together in ways that are life-changing for all of us. So um, this coming, no, a week from Monday, a week from tomorrow, um, we're having community worship. We do this about every month or two, and um, we just open the doors, and our friends, a variety of reality friends, lead an hour of worship. It's family-friendly. It's for anyone and everyone. It's really fun, and it's a great way to just step across the threshold for the first time into something that might be different. Um, but also might be really um, a place where you find resonates with, um, with who Jesus is and who you're finding um, God to be. There are lots of ways to get involved during the day and the evenings. We have a summer camp coming up in August, and um, we have a really lovely opportunity to come and eat lunch on the first and third uh, Fridays of the month, starting up again in September. So um, talk to Chris or Marcus or um, come on our website, and we'd love to invite you in. Thank you for inviting us here today.
Thank you. Yeah, Susan mentioned I, I got to cook, and, and um, it was a really important time, which, like, now you saying some of that stuff, like, you act like, like y'all copied us, which it's exactly the opposite around. Um, a lot of the inspiration for, for kind of how we are together, um, I learned in my time there. Um, both how important it is to be for people, and if you go to Reality Ministries, you see this giant, beautiful, painted banner that says, I'm for you. But um, specifically in my cooking, um, it would have been easier for me to just like cook for a group and there, the mandate and the expectation and the skill that I learned was cooking with people, um, especially people with, with very strong opinions on how to cook. Um, and so uh, over the course of a couple of years, that was something that, that really made a pretty indelible mark on me and on the, the way um, it feels like God is calling me and us to do community together in a, in a way of, of witness and incarnation and mutuality together. So I'm thankful for, for the amazing lessons that, that continue from just a little bit of time there. Uh, I'd love for you guys to get involved if you aren't already with reality. And like Susan said, there's plenty of opportunities of varying degrees. There's also opportunities to partner with them financially, um, especially in the summertime as, as they have um, camp and uh, various summer activities that you can help scholarship and, and make possible uh, time um, away uh, special time. So I'm going to invite Jeff up, but before I do, I'm going to read our scripture from today, and Jeff's going to continue our series on, 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 the, script, on uh, the Spirit in Scripture, and for the first part of summer, we were mostly in the Old Testament, and in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've flipped over into the New Testament, and Jeff is going to preach today from Romans 8, if I can find it. Always mark your Bibles ahead of time. It's from Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature can't please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. This is the word of God for God's people. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chris. Good morning again. We're delighted to be here this morning. I like to think of Reality Ministries as a Christ-centered, biblical, theologically driven um, mission of sorts, or enterprise, or adventure. Um, so when Chris invited me today to, to preach on Romans 8, it gave us an opportunity to share one of the premises of what we're about at Reality Ministries from the scripture. And that is that we believe that there is no us versus them when it comes to theological anthropology and the being of each person. There is not a theological us versus them. Two laws in the gospel. Have you ever, why, have you ever wondered why you see so much good in unbelievers? I used to be confounded by this. As a young Christian, I'd think, you know, those people don't really love each other. They're not Christians, and Jesus is love. And, um, I mean, for goodness sakes, the spirit, the fruit of the, love is a fruit of the spirit. And, you know, without the spirit, without Jesus, they don't really, they don't really love each other. But then it became readily apparent to me that, yes, that couple actually really did love one another even more than most Christian couples that I had seen. What's going on there? Or, have you ever wondered why you see so much bad or even evil in believers? I don't need to go through the examples. We see it in the press every day. But I will, I will share that two books that meant a lot to me when I was a young Christian, Ordering Your Private World and Who You Are When No One's Looking, were authored by men who later showed themselves anything but immune to leading a destructive double life. Christian authors. So in our scripture today, we have two laws. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. I want to encourage you not to think of the Jewish law first and foremost when considering these two laws. These laws are deeper than the Jewish law, although not unrelated. To live congruently to the law of the spirit of life, for instance, is to obey the Jewish law. Both are good. But because the Jewish law is invariably co-opted by sin, the same cannot be said in reverse. This explains Paul's conflicted relationship with the Jewish law. I would suggest that the deeper laws, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death, are the two laws of our being, are the two laws of being, or more exactly, being and anti-being. These two laws are operative in every single person 
at all times. On one level, they're indicative of our true self under the law of the spirit of life and our false self under the law of sin and death. Now, before we go any further, there can be a lot of talk about true self, false self without reference to Jesus Christ. Things can get humanistic very quickly. Even New Age folks talk about reach within to find yourself. Self-discovery is very popular. But as I like to say, know thyself is never the way to thy true self. True self and false self must always be kept in the context of the one person. Otherwise, they devolve into abstractions. For instance, we don't say, my false self has a toothache. <laughs> we say, I have a toothache. Or, Pat has a toothache. Against abstract tendencies, then, we should always remember that the one thing Pat's true self and Pat's false self have in common is Pat. I actually didn't think of abstract and the uh, toothache going together when I, until the last version of this sermon when I realized those two, <laughs> those two are, tend, tend to be connected when we have to go to the dentist. But not only can these concepts be abstract when separated from the one person, the true self can be very arbitrarily assigned. Have you ever heard the following explanations or excuses? I wasn't in my right mind, which leads us to ask, well, what is your right mind? Or that wasn't the real me. What is the real you? That wasn't my best self. Based on what? Or how about this one? That wasn't me speaking. It was Captain Morgan or Jack Daniels. Or I don't even recognize the person who did that to you. Or, I'm sorry, please believe me when I tell you that wasn't me. When used to evade culpability, these alibis come across as disingenuous. But can a true self, false self approach be helpful? Brandy Carlisle, I don't know if anybody likes Brandy Carlisle, an incredible artist has a song that she wrote called, That Wasn't Me. And supposedly, Brandy wrote this from the point of view of someone with an addiction. Notice these two standards and how they compare. Did I lie through my teeth? Did I cause you to stumble on your feet? Did I bring shame on my family? Did it show when I was weak? Whatever you've seen, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Oh, that wasn't me. Do I make myself a blessing to everyone I meet? When you fall, I'll get you on your feet. Do I spend time with my family? Did it show when I was weak? When that's what you've seen, that will be me. That will be me. That will be me. It can be helpful to differentiate. These stanzas are obviously symmetrical, reflecting the false self and the true self. And I know Brandy is a Christian. I think she's right in her assessing the true two selves. But still, how can we really know that we are not arbitrarily assigning things to my true self? 
After all, it's easy to seize the high ground by claiming my true self is good and that the bad things I do are regrettable exceptions. But what is our anchor of reference in making such a claim? How do we know it's not the other way around? It's, it all seems kind of squishy. Thankfully, we can attain a concrete understanding of the law and of humanity by starting not with ourselves, but with the person of Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh, the Son of God and Son of Man. Now, undoubtedly, Jesus was the true human. We must never lose sight of that. But Scripture also testifies that Jesus took on flesh, the biblical word not just for skin and bones, but for fallen, corrupt humanity. In other words, it's not simply pre-fall flesh and bones that Jesus took on, but post-fall flesh, the sinful nature. Chris actually read out of the 1986 NIV version. Uh, it's not gender inclusive, but uh, which is one of its um, shortcomings. However, it does translate the flesh as sinful nature, which I think, which is sarkos or sarks in the Greek, which I think can be helpful. I don't oppose that rendering, sinful nature as opposed to flesh, because to me it helpfully communicates the holistic corruption of the flesh, mind, body, and soul. It's not just about our flesh. However, sinful nature can be misleading if we think of original sin as the most accurate understanding of human nature. Again, Jesus Christ is our reference point. Our true humanity comes first. Jesus Christ is the image of God, and we are created in the image. We are created in Jesus Christ, in his true humanity. So original belonging is therefore deeper than original sin. This is critical so that we cannot confuse our sinful nature with our true original human nature. God's kingdom, writes E. Stanley Jones, is our native land. In it, we are supernaturally natural. Sadly, he continues, man has become naturalized in unnatural sin. But it, sin, isn't natural. Accustomed, but not natural. A pastor told me, he continues, that he had ridden his bicycle so long with crooked handlebars that when somebody straightened them, he fell off. He was naturalized in the unnatural. End quote. Jesus' whole life, it's been said, was the carrying of a cross. It involved incessant warfare between his true natural humanity as the firstborn of all creation and the false, unnatural humanity he assumed. And it's in the garden where we see this struggle most clearly. This next slide is by Janice Little. Many of you know Janice. And Janice is a local artist, absolutely incredibly gifted. And in this portrayal, this woodcut of Jesus in the garden, you notice that the men and women, the disciples there, are asleep. And they're, they're, um, you can see the serpent's trail through connecting all of them and then wrapping around Christ. These human beings are constricted by the sleepiness of the sinful nature. And Jesus himself is constricted and wrapped up in the sinful nature. 
And we're so thankful that Jesus is even more wrapped up in the love of the Father, even at the same time. Janice's woodcut helps us to picture Jesus' intimate identification with the human struggle. His struggle, of course, is much more intense than ours, but it's reflective of the struggles we face every day at our own crossroads, the false self versus the true self. Hopefully you see what I'm doing. I'm making sure we locate and root concepts of the false self and true self, not in our own arbitrary understanding, but in Jesus Christ's own struggle against the flesh. This is the meaning of the first part of today's passage. Jesus Christ condemns sin in the flesh by assuming it and crucifying it and burying it in himself. He took on our false likeness, our sinful nature, so to speak, to reveal to us his true likeness in which we are created, our original human nature. In coming as a Palestinian Jew of humble origins, God, in his great love for us, shows he understands our temptation and our brokenness. And in his humanity, he provides a way of escape that we do not have access to in the flesh. He therefore honors the law and his human creation, even while redeeming them. So let's say more about this idea of theological anthropology for every person as it derives from Christ's witness of struggle against the flesh. The law of the spirit of life, as I've said, is the law of our being. We are all created in Christ and breathed into being by the Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian creation dynamic means that who we are in Christ and who we are in the spirit are not two different things. It would be a very non-Hebraic notion to say everyone's in Christ, but not everyone's in the spirit. Breath cannot be separated from body. If God was to remove his Holy Spirit from any of us, we would just shrivel up like raisins and fall dead to the ground. That's why it would be totally foreign to Paul's way of thinking, to think of verse 8-9 in a Greek sense. Instead, this verse, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, is Paul's way of making a claim on those in whom the spirit lives. The spirit of God lives within you, he's already said in the first part of the verse. And no one opts out of this inclusion. He's effectively saying, I wouldn't even be writing to you if you didn't have the spirit. And because you do have the spirit, he says later, you have an obligation. There's built-in accountability. We are all in Christ and in the Spirit, implicated in the law of the Spirit of life. This is what Bonhoeffer called the law of the real. To go against it is to do violence to our relationship with God, to do violence to our relationship with others, and to do violence to our very selves. It's intrinsically self-destructive. The law of sin and death, then, is a law in which our whole being is wholly corrupted by the fall. There's this mirroring parasitic effect, meaning that it's not another creation, because Satan can't create. He can only obscure and twist what is good into something unrecognizable and helpless. But again, folks, our image and likeness in Christ is a non-negotiable, dimension of our lives. Yeah. 
It is always there. It is not destroyed by the fall, but only covered up, so to speak. As two dimensions, then, in our one person, these two laws implicating every human are mutually exclusive and simultaneous. We're not used to thinking of mutually exclusive and simultaneous at the same time, in the same sentence. But that's what's happening here. It's a dimensional duality, not a dualism. We're not used to keeping these together. But if we don't, we will fall prey to platonic dualism. And what I mean by that is concepts like my true self is in heaven and my false self is on earth. Or my false self is on earth um, or my body is here, but my spirit is there. So these kinds of body-soul dualisms have to constantly be resisted. These two mutually exclusive dimensions are in one space, and they're simultaneous. The simultaneous theme can be difficult for us to grasp because many of us have grown up in a sequence-driven Christian environment. Born anew has, has less to do with our resurrection in Christ and more to do with our conversion experiences in that environment. But we have to admit, a purely sequential theme can be very confusing. For instance, you know, they said at camp that when I committed my heart to Christ, I got a new heart. But why do I experience more symptoms of wickedness now than I ever did before I got my heart transplanted? Or they say that when I became a Christian, the old is gone and the new had come. Why is the old st still continue to rear its head even more so than it did before my conversion? What's going on? On the mountaintop, you see, we really believe the old is gone and the new has come. And then two weeks later, we realize that's not the full picture. Carl Barth said one time, I thought I'd drown the old man. That guy proved to be a pretty good swimmer. Can you relate? Now, am I doing away with sequence altogether? Not at all. I'm simply proclaiming a more concrete sequence on which to base all of your experiences and my experiences. Your old self died with Christ. And your new self is risen with Jesus Christ. You died and rose in Christ. That is your primary sequence. You might be starting to react. Hey, don't take my sequence. I don't want to devalidate anybody's experience. But I hope you're beginning to see that when you give up your sequence, you find it more transformingly in Christ. In other words, the Christological sequence is your primary sequence. And the spirit of truth is how the sequence comes to bear in your, in your own experience. This gives transformational purpose to my own little sequence moments. I can look back on giving my heart to Christ when I was seven, my re recommitment at 15, a transformational epiphany at 38 years old, knowing that all of these are manifestations by the Holy Spirit of the sequence of my death and resurrection in Christ long ago. In my baptism as an adult, I see the same dynamic. The sacraments are powerful and sometimes 
not only palpable, but there's a visceral and emotional aspect to them precisely because they are rooted in the reality which precedes them. The Holy Spirit acts within the landscape of the total and total dimensions. Each person 100% sinful, having died with Christ. I know it's hard to hear, but Jesus wasn't shy about calling not just the Pharisees, but the disciples evil. Each person 100% sinful, having died with Christ, and 100% righteous, having risen with Christ. By righteous, now I don't mean legal righteousness, but perfect wholeness and completeness. That's what you're given in Christ, Scripture tells us. But if I'm perfect and complete in Christ, why don't I appear to you as perfect and complete? Well, it's because of the refraction of my false self at play. Well, if I'm a total sinner, why don't I come across to you as totally evil? Well, because of the refraction of my true self. Because of this overlap, I, even, I can't even rightly claim that I had a pure motive for anything. I had a pure motive when I helped that lady across the street. How can I claim that? Because of these two dimensions, I can't. I'm not meant to control that. I'm not meant to capture that and make it a badge for myself to wear. I can only say that it was a pure motive to the extent that it was. <laughs> Am I preaching the word to you this morning? I can't claim that I am, or that this percentage was the word and this percentage was not the word. All I can know is that I'm preaching the word of God to the extent that I am. And I know that to the extent that I'm preaching the word, it will not return void. It's refreshing not to be in control. It's all about the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where he wills. Can you see advantages to this way of thinking? The alternative is a progressive scheme of sanctification where I place myself on a sliding scale between 0 and 100, trying to grow in the positive direction. Well, I made some ground, but then I took a sack yesterday. I'm working toward the end zone. The problem is that while I avoid the humiliation of describing myself as 100% sinful in the progressive scheme, I also shortchange what Scripture tells me about my 100% wholeness. I don't have 100% of either one. To me, the two total laws approach simply makes more sense of Scripture. On one hand, no one is good. No one is righteous. No, not one. And on the other hand, everyone is good. Very good. Redeemed as holy and pure, without blemish, and free from accusation. Paul's two laws of beings in Romans simply don't allow for an in-between option where, I've where I'm kind of good or I'm kind of bad. I'm on a fluid scale. You might say, well, this is all kind of counterintuitive and this is crazy. Okay, okay, okay. But, but how, tell me, how do I live in the good? Well, again, the Holy Spirit. Instead of a static category in Christ, Keeping the Holy Spirit in the holistic conception of the true self in Christ is what provides the dynamism that we want in and hope for. In their true selves, everyone knows God. Everyone is a believer in Jesus Christ. In preaching, the word pierces through the tangling of our lives and calls us to live in and move and have our being in that reality, to be who we are in Christ. Therefore, 
When we preach, we can preach with the anticipation that at one level, people are already responding to Christ, unconsciously before consciously, in this dimensional view. What if we looked at every person as existing in this in Christ dimension, regardless of the other heinous complications and confusions that could be at play? Now, I want to finish this morning by focusing practically on this idea of how the Holy Spirit lifts us up to live in our true humanity of Christ. But before that, just a quick review. We all belong to Christ by virtue of creation. Any talk about people being created in the image, oh, they're created in the image, without talking about them being created in Christ, is something we don't have permission to do from the New Testament. Every person is, by virtue of our creation in Christ and by revelation of redemption, the resurrection, actively participating in the law of the spirit of life, perfectly obedient, filled with the fruit of the spirit. In my true inner being, I delight in God's law, Romans 7.22. In my true self, I am a slave to righteousness, 7.25. However, in my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. We are, by virtue of the fall and by the revelation of redemption, the cross, participants in the law of sin and death. And as Paul continues in chapter 8, in our sinful minds and our wrongheadedness, we cannot do good. We cannot please God. We are, in fact, hostile to God's law. In sum, in the flesh, we cannot do good. In the spirit, we cannot not do good. We have both of these going on in the same space. I started off asking why there's so much evil in believers, and hopefully our scriptural investigation has helped us to assess how the demons of addiction and other dimensions of enslavement can exist in true believers. Likewise, have we truly considered the possibility of unbelievers being in Christ, and that any good that we see in any person is a result of the Holy Spirit's presence, the law of the Spirit of life working in them? If we have not given everyone their implication in the meta-sequence of the death and resurrection of Christ, or if we have quarantined the Holy Spirit as existing only in believers, then I'm afraid we have set up a theological us versus them, which will severely limit us in engaging with the world's problems. So as a last take-home illustration, let's consider the issue of implicit bias. In Tuesday's newspaper, the Herald Sun, it spoke of the study where undergraduates constantly mislabeled the young black students as angry and thought misbehaving black students showed more hostility than misbehaving white boys. Black-white inequality in school discipline is a major problem in the U.S., said the president of the William T. Grant Foundation. Psychologists are trying to find out what that is and what we can do about it. Notice the helplessness here of trying to figure this out from a purely secular vantage point. Gives all the statistics. And then one of the experts says, sometimes people interpret that as there's a whole lot of prejudiced people out there, that, that sometimes people interpret the statistics, the overwhelming statistical evidence that implicit bias is a problem. Sometimes people interpret that as there's a whole lot of prejudiced people out there and this doesn't apply to me said Karen Kozlowski. But implicit bias sits beneath our consciousness. 
It's festering all the time because we live in a society shaped by cultural messages about race. It's impossible for us to escape those messages. End quote. And then the columnist says, even when people recognize problems because of implicit bias, solutions can be scarce. Give up, give up on that one. Solutions? Now, if you're white, you might, like me, sometimes feel helpless and discouraged at your recognition of unconscious racism, implicit bias described as it is here. It is daunting. Unconscious bias feels impossible to deal with precisely because it's unconscious. Our sinful attempts to interpret sin only add to the quagmire. So faced with this challenge, we as Christians can make a huge mistake. We can start with the problem instead of the gospel. I ask you again, what if we were to recognize that every person in our community is, unconsciously before consciously, participating in Jesus Christ without bias, without racism, without prejudice? Such a starting point, I might suggest, would be the ultimate in a theological asset-based community development. Conversely, do you see how starting with unconscious bias is backwards? Walking by sight instead of by faith? Because we're starting with sin. We would then be giving more credit to unconscious bias than to unconscious righteousness. More credit to the effects of the fall than to the work of Christ. We would be giving more implicit depth to bias than to righteousness. Only because we see more of the bad than the good. But if we start with unconscious, the unconscious dynamic spirit-filled righteousness for every person, does that make us light on sin? By no means. It actually makes the gravity of sin worse. I like what Stephanie said earlier when she was talking about keeping short accounts. Of course, the challenge is not to enable the wicked behavior and the sinfulness, even while affirming the non-negotiable of humans created and redeemed in Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. But this total righteousness exposes and brings to light my total sinfulness, allowing me as a white man to better interrogate and dismantle the racist elements of my life that my sinful self doesn't want me to see. And secondly, this perspective provides us with a hopeful accountability for our lives that we can live into even now, as verse 11 states. Starting with the person of Christ instead of the problem, the Spirit helps us to live under the good news of the judgment of the cross where our old selves have been crucified with Christ. By absorbing the law of sin and death, death, Jesus condemns it. In the process, he condemns the false self and the letter that kills. I don't know about you, but I need the cross to demonstrate that my racist behaviors and actions and thoughts have no future. The total grace of no condemnation requires total judgment. The judgment of the cross. And ironically, much of the typical evangelical mindset is geared toward avoiding final judgment. If you give your life to Christ, you don't, you're not judged in the final judgment. You get to go on through. No, judgment's exactly what we need 
In other words, our hope is not found in avoiding judgment, but because we're confident in the judgment. Until judgment day, these two total dimensions of our lives exist in one space or one person. This is the judgment of the cross that we are all accountable to and that we will all answer to. Are we prepared to see firsthand our false selves implicated in the death of Christ? And to celebrate our new true selves alive with him? Or will we cling to our false selves then, even as we do now? Everyone will face the judgment. In the meantime, while we make judgments and seek to discern, we are not to pass judgment. Toward the end of Romans, Paul says it this way. Romans 14. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we, were, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us, will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Today, I want to have encouraged us not to put the stumbling block of a different theological anthropology in front of our community with persons as an obstacle. I'm going to end today by making an exegetical reapplication of our text related to the issue of implicit racism. I'll start out with the last verse of Romans 7 in the first person before transitioning to our Romans 8, 1 through 11 text and to the third person. Here's my application. So then, in my true self, I am completely unbiased. But in my false self, I can be nothing but biased. I am thankful that in Christ I am not defined by my false self, which has been condemned. For the law of the spirit of, Christ, of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the traditional law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with my bias, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous law of Christ, my unbiased nature in him, might be manifest even now as I walk by the Spirit against the designs of the flesh. For I know that in the flesh my bias is implicit, unconscious, and intractable. But I also know that because of the redeeming work of Christ, I can live in the truth of the Spirit. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because there is no neutral... My mind of implicit bias is actually hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And to the extent we are enslaved to bias, we cannot please God. But you are not defined by the flesh. You are Christ defined by the Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you, in fact, you've always belonged to Christ by the Spirit. Because by the Spirit, Christ is in you. Though your false biased self constantly drags you to sin's grave, the Spirit brings you life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead can also bring a miraculous, unbiased mindset to bear, in spite of your fleshly bias, through his spirit who dwells in you. So am I biased or unbiased when it comes to race? Yes. Am I hopelessly caught in a solutionless tug of war? No. Wretched human that I am, who will rescue me from this deadly false self? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, you know our inner wrestlings better than we know our own inner wrestlings. And we don't know, we admit, we confess other people's inner wrestlings, even though oftentimes we project onto them, or that we assume that we do know what they're going through. You love us so much, just the way we are, that we might be continually by your Holy Spirit living into who we are in Christ and who we are meant to be. We ask for your help in this. Come Holy Spirit. And thank you for visiting us as we've gathered today in community. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.